What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. So today's episode is one I've been wanting to do for a very long time. I'm super excited about it. It's Bernie Madoff. And I just want to get like right into it. Um, my main sources are Wikipedia, Astro Theme, The New York Times, The Jewish News Syndicate, JewishNews.com, a 60 Minutes interview with Harry Markopoulos, which I thought was pronounced Markopoulos, but it's Markopoulos, which is fun because the game Marco Polo, and Investopedia. And I think there's some more, but those were like my main sources. Before we get started, Remember to sign up for the Patreon because we have bonus episodes coming out on the first of every month. And with that, we'll go ahead and get into it. So I first learned about Bernie Madoff in my Business 101 class when I was in college. And I knew I was getting a business degree, but I didn't know what I was going to specialize in. And then I learned about the forensic accountant who worked on this case. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do accounting. There were some other factors that went into that, but I just remember the whole class, like watching this documentary about Bernie Madoff and just being shocked that something like that could happen. And so that's where I heard about him. Also today, the episode, this episode comes out on January 4th, and that is the same day that the Bernie Madoff Netflix docuseries is coming out. And I did not plan that at all. I was actually doing my research for this and I saw that docuseries was coming out and I was like, this is literally perfect timing. So listen to this and then go watch the docuseries and I'm going to watch it too because I'm really excited about it. I kind of wish that it was coming out before, but I think it's probably good that it didn't so that I could just do my research and not pull straight from that. You know what I mean? Because I want to be able to just watch that and enjoy it. All right. Who is Bernie Madoff? Bernard Lawrence Madoff was an American fraudster who masterminded the largest Ponzi scheme in history to date, worth about $64.8 billion. He was born on April 29, 1938, and he died on April 14, 2021. So according to AstroTheme, because I had to look at this guy's chart, I was like, this dude's crazy, let's see what's up. He has a Taurus sun, a Taurus moon, and a Leo rising. So he was almost a triple Taurus threat, which from personal experience, I know a triple Taurus and I have a friend who knows a triple Taurus and that's really, really fucking intense. That would not even like surprise me if a triple Taurus did all of these things, but I think it makes sense. I feel like to be so ballsy, you need a little bit of a fire sign in your chart. So the Leo rising makes sense to me. And then also he does have a Taurus midheaven. So very stubborn. According to Wikipedia, he was born in Queens, New York to his parents, Sylvia and Ralph Madoff, and he was the second of three children. His siblings are Sandra Weiner and Peter Madoff. So he is Jewish. His family's Jewish. His grandparents were immigrants from Poland, Romania, and Austria. And he grew up in Laurelton at the southern edge of Queens near what's now John F. Kennedy International Airport, according to the New York Times. Madoff actually met his wife at Far Rockaway High School in 1956. Well, they weren't husband and wife yet, but that's where they met, and then they later got married. Her name was Ruth Alpern. Ruth's father had a small but thriving accounting practice in Manhattan, and this kind of plays into the storyline here in a little bit. But like I said, Bernie and Ruth, they got married on November 28th of 1959, And then Bernie attended the University of Alabama for one year, and then he transferred to Hofstra University in 1960, graduated in 1960 with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. So he briefly attended the Brooklyn Law School. He was there for a year, and then he decided, he was like, you know what, I'm out of here. I want to work full-time and be an investor. So he founded Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, so he could work for himself. And I feel like this is really ironic that he went to law school and he was like, mm, not for me. It's just like, I don't think any sort of law, anything was really for Bernie. So Bernard and Ruth, they had their two sons, Mark and Andrew. Mark was born in 1964 and Andrew was born in 1966. So he had started his company before they were born And let's talk a little bit more about the company, and then we'll kind of come back to some of the family stuff. So like I said, 1960, 
Bernie founded Bernard L. Madoff Securities, LLC, in 1960 as a penny stock broker-dealer. Now, penny stocks are common shares of small public companies that trade for less than $1 per share. I learned about these in school, and the only thing I could really remember to tell you guys about them is, like, just be careful with them. I don't, I couldn't tell you why. Like, I don't really remember much about them. I didn't like finance as much when I was in school. I was an accounting person. And then in financial services, a broker-dealer is a person, company, or some sort of organization that engages in the business of trading securities for its own account or on behalf of its customers. So Bernie started his company with $5,000, and that was all he had at that point. It was what he had saved up from working as a lifeguard and an irrigation sprinkler installer while he was in college. Because, like, back in the day, you could you know, pay for your college and go to work and save money and all that. Like, you can't really do that quite as easy now. This $5,000 is equivalent to about $46,000 as of 2021. And then his father-in-law, Saul Alpern, so Ruth's dad, who was the accountant, he loaned him $50,000 and referred some of his friends and family to use Bernie's services. I didn't even prep you guys. If you don't know who Bernie Madoff is, I wanted to say Bernie Sanders for a second. If you don't know who Bernie Madoff is, white collar crime. This is a white collar crime episode, so just buckle up. This is going to be a little bit of a longer one too because I'm very passionate about this topic and there's a lot of information to cover. Okay, so like I said, we would get back to the family. So this was very much a family-run business. This was a family affair. His wife Ruth started working for him and she founded the Madoff Charitable Foundation Both of his sons, once they were old enough, ended up working in the trading section of the firm with their cousin, Charles Wiener. Bernie's younger brother, Peter, who was an attorney, was senior managing director and chief compliance officer. And Peter's daughter, Shana Madoff, was also an attorney, and she was the firm's compliance attorney. Compliance, with air quotes around it. So after Peter joined the Madoff firm in 1970, they built a reputation of being this, like, technologically advanced firm. They harnessed cutting-edge technology in what had been like a very traditional, straightforward business of just trading securities. So according to the New York Times, the firm was one of the early participants in the electronic market that ultimately became the modern NASDAQ and was involved as an investor in several other platforms for computerized trading. At one point, Madoff Securities was the largest market maker at the NASDAQ and in 2008 was the sixth largest market maker in S&P 500 stocks. So that's a big deal. And then this is also from Wikipedia. Madoff was the, quote, first prominent practitioner of payment for order flow in which a dealer pays a broker for the right to execute a customer's order. And so this has been called a legal kickback A lot of financiers question the ethicality of this, but a lot of people are also in favor of it. So this is what Wikipedia said. Payment for order flow, or PFOF, is the compensation that a stockbroker receives from a market maker in exchange for the broker routing its clients' trades to that market maker. So people in favor of this practice have defended it for helping develop new investment apps, low-cost trading, and more efficient execution. Now, I don't know enough, like, about this concept to know where I stand on it, whether it's, like, good or bad. I do think one thing that I really respect about the finance and accounting world is that there's a lot of ways to kind of work around the law in order to, I don't want to say manipulate money, but make money work for you in the way that you want it without being illegal. In this case, we're obviously going to talk about some illegal dealings. I don't know if, like, this is necessarily a good thing, especially since it's like associated with Bernie. But yeah, that's where I stand on that. So like I said, they had the Madoff Charitable Foundation, the Madoff Family Foundation. They were philanthropists, if you will. Madoff served on boards of nonprofit institutions, many of which entrusted him with their endowments. This next little section I'm going to read to you is from Wikipedia. So Madoff served as the chairman of the board of directors for the School of Business, the School of Business, at Yeshiva University and as treasurer of its board of trustees. He also served on the board of New York City Center, a member of New York City's Cultural Institutions Group. He served on the executive council of the Wall Street Division of the UJA Foundation of of New York. However, they did decline to invest funds with him because of like the conflict of interest. They're like, well, you're 
an executive council on this, like we probably shouldn't invest with you, which is really good for them that they didn't do that. Good on their part. Um, Madoff undertook charity work for the Gift of Life Bone Marrow Foundation, and he made philanthropic gifts through the Madoff Family Foundation, the $19 million private foundation he managed with his wife. And this is sad. I'm going to bring it down a little bit. In March 2003, Andrew Madoff, his son, was diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma, and Madoff donated approximately $6 million to lymphoma research after he was diagnosed. He did eventually go into remission, and he went back to work for his father. They also donated money to hospitals and theaters, as well as contributed to many educational, cultural, and health charities. So their lifestyle was... I guess I haven't really explained all of their success yet. Obviously, I said they were cutting edge with the technology, and so they were kind of like leaders in the industry there. Madoff, the firm did well for themselves. So they did live a relatively cushy lifestyle, if you will. Like in comparison to like your average Joe, they had a fancy fucking life. But I think in comparison to some other Wall Street moguls at the time, it wasn't quite as flashy, or at least that's what I've taken from like some of these interviews. But he was still like, you look at that dude and you're like, oh, they're rich. Like they have multiple homes type rich. So according to a filing in 2009 filed by Madoff, he and his wife were worth up to $126 million plus an estimated $700 million for the value of his business interest in Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC. And their family was also like very intertwined with the government. So I'm trying to paint like a picture of these kind of powerful financial people for you, intertwined with the government. They made donations, held positions on boards of directors. They were chairmen, leaders, etc. He and his wife gave over $230,000 to political causes since 1991. The bulk of that did go to the Democratic Party. So they definitely had connections in the government. They had connections, which we'll see later, with the SEC, um, just within the community. So they were well-known. Bernie lived in Roslyn, New York, in a ranch throughout most of the 1970s, and then in the 1980s, he purchased an oceanfront residence in Montauk, New York, for $250,000. His primary residence, however, was in Manhattan's Upper East Side. I think it was an apartment, and he was listed as a chairman of the building's co-op board. I guess, obviously, it would be an apartment. It's Manhattan. What am I thinking? He also owned a home in France and an 8,700 square foot house in Palm Beach, Florida, which he did a lot of networking and socializing in Palm Beach. Okay, so that's just a little bit about Bernie. I want to start talking about the nitty gritty. So let's get into the timeline. So according to the New York Times, by the early 1960s, which is right when they started, Bernie had started accepting money raised for him by his father-in-law, Saul Alpern, and two accountants who worked at the Alpern firm. And so these two accountants sustained the cash flow through the issuance of notes that they failed to register with the SEC, which is required by law. So the commission shut down that hidden money management business in 1992 after Bernie had received almost $500 million from the accountant's clients who believed that he was investing it for them. So if you're not picking it up already, he is taking money and not doing what he says that he's going to do with it. So regulators filed civil charges against these two accountants. They're like, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not like recording or registering these notes. So they forced them to shut down their operation. However, they didn't really investigate past the fact that like this money was going to Bernie Madoff's firm. They just were like, all right, you need to give the money back to the investors. If they had continued investigating, they probably would have uncovered more fraudulent activity, which this is 1992, and they'd been doing this since the early 1960s. Like, there was definitely fraudulent activity going on there. Yeah, so all the money, they were basically, the SEC was like, just return the money to the customers. And they did so, but the cash that was returned to the customers was from one of Madoff's largest investors' accounts. So if you're following me here, you're starting to see we have a Ponzi scheme activity going on. He's taking money from investors and paying investors with money that he just took from other investors. So even after he paid back his investors, most of the money actually went back to Madoff because they were like, 
they enjoyed what he was doing with their money. Like, they didn't really know exactly what was going on. Either they were looking the other way or they were choosing to remain ignorant because Madoff was providing them a steady, reliable rate of return on their, according to the New York Times, supposedly conservative accounts. So as long as they were getting their promised returns, they were like, it's fine. So they gave all their money back to Madoff. I saw in the 60 Minutes interview, there was someone said that they were receiving about a 12% return on investment, which is really good. Like that's, yeah, 12% every year on your investment. That's great. So Bernie's father-in-law was not the only person that was pointing clientele towards Bernie's firm. Large hedge funds were funneling money to Madoff. Major accounting and investment firms were sending client money to Madoff's firm. And at this point, so it started off as this kind of like mom and pop firm, right? And they start handling big amounts of money. They're in New York. You know, it's like it's starting to blow up. It's starting to pick up some steam And they're not necessarily, like, up there with, like, some of the big names on Wall Street, but it's like, you know, this guy's doing good returns. Lots of people are sending their money to him. So he's he's building a name for himself. So to invest with Bernie Madoff's firm was like being invited to an exclusive investment club. It was, like, new and exciting. Bernie was charming. He was good at socializing. And I've seen in multiple sources that said this, that he would turn people down. So, like, he would meet people at these events. They'd be like, oh, I would love to invest with you. And he'd be like, I don't know. Like, I think we're good. He would turn people down that wanted to invest with him. And then later on, he'd be like, actually, you know what? You can invest with us. And it kind of added to this, like, elusive image of the firm. Later on, many of these institutions, the hedge funds, the investment firms, They were brought to court by investors who were angry that these firms were not using their due diligence when it came to their money. They're giving their money to these firms. Like, I'm imagining, like, giving my money to, like, Vanguard or something. And, like, I feel like Vanguard is, like, really trustworthy. I give it to Vanguard, and then they turn around and they give it to Bernie Madoff. Like, I'm expecting Vanguard to be, you know, looking into what he's doing with my money. And these institutions were not doing that. So these people are getting upset, going to court. But these institutions, they were fine with it because, like, they're like, well, like, he's making returns and, like, lots of people are investing with him. So it's kind of just this, like, this image is being built up. Everyone, and this is so common when we see, like, white-collar crime. Like, when I talk about these other fraudsters, like Elizabeth Holmes and Martin Shkreli and, like, all these other people, Billy McFarlane, like, the hype is what people start to believe. And... In this scenario, they're actually getting cold, hard cash, and they're getting a lot of it. And so most people aren't really going to, like, question that. They're like, well, we got a good thing going. So it just perpetuates this cycle. So here's where stuff gets spicy. In the late 90s, financial analyst Harry Markopoulos, (laughs) sorry, Harry Markopoulos, an American former securities industry executive and a forensic accounting and financial fraud investigator, was asked by his boss to take a look at Bernie's hedge fund, which at this time was unregistered, and he wanted him to try and reverse engineer it to figure out the strategy. He's like, what is he doing that's like getting so much return on investment? And this was when they discovered that it was mathematically impossible for him to be pulling in this return on investment without there being something illegal going on, whether it be insider trading or a Ponzi scheme. So according to Marco Polos, it took him four minutes to conclude that Madoff's numbers did not add up and another minute to suspect they were fraudulent. After another four hours of failed attempts to replicate his numbers using financial and statistical modeling, I mean, this dude's really smart. If you watch the interview, which I'll link, of course, He has taken every possible calculus course that you can take, all the statistic courses, all the algebra courses. Like, he's a mathematician, essentially, a genius in my terms. I don't know if everyone would call him a genius, but I feel like if you take all those math classes, you've got to be, like, really smart. So he's, like, trying to figure it out, and it's just not adding up. And he's like, yeah, I can prove this man is mathematically a fraud. So in 2000, and on multiple occasions after that, Harry informed the SEC that he believed it was legally and mathematically impossible to achieve the gains that Madoff claimed to deliver. He was unfortunately ignored by the SEC's Boston office in 2000 and 2001, as well as in 2005 and 2007 when he presented further evidence. He actually co-authored a book, Harry Markopoulos, called 
No one would listen. He wrote it with the head of his legal team. I can't remember his name, and I'll have it in the show notes. In this book, he outlines the roughly 10-year-long attempt that he and his legal team went to try to get someone, anyone, hopefully the SEC, to listen to him about Madoff. And he said in that 60 Minutes interview that in 2000, he's like, okay, the fraud is theoretical. This is just based on mathematics, based on calculations. But as early as 2001, Harry had discovered that in order for Madoff's strategy to be legitimate, he would have had to buy more options on the Chicago Board Options Exchange than actually existed. So, like, that's, like, literally impossible. And then by 2005, he had 29 hard pieces of evidence that should have proven the fraud that he showed to the SEC, and no one was listening, no one was taking it seriously. So Madoff had so many people roped into his firm by this point. I mean, it started in the 60s. You know, it's picking up traction in the 80s and the 90s. By the early 2000s, people have their entire livelihoods invested with him. People trusted him. Everyone knew someone who was investing with Madoff. It was just like a common name if you were in this investment world. And it was really sad because... It ranged from, like, small investors, like, just families that are, like, you know, hardworking families putting their money with this man and getting returns and being really excited about it. They're like, wow, I'm working hard and I'm investing and I'm doing all the right things and I'm getting all this money back. And then also celebrities have been known to have invested with him. So it's really, it's heartbreaking when you think about it, like, the families that put their money with him that didn't realize what was going on. I That's what I remember the most about, like, my first time hearing about him was just, like, watching the the families in like these 60 minute interviews and the PBS documentaries and stuff like that talking about what happened to them and then they recommended their friends and family to invest with him and so on and so forth and it was just this really nasty web. So as I mentioned before, actually I don't think I mentioned this yet. Madoff's wealth management business ultimately did grow to a multi-billion dollar operation. None of the major derivatives firms traded with him because they didn't believe his numbers were real. So the major Wall Street firms, they're like, um, we've kind of been doing this shit for like a really long time. None of those firms invested with him. Several high-ranking executives at those firms suspected his operations and claims were not legitimate. This is from Wikipedia. Others said that it was inconceivable that the volume of Madoff's accounts could be competently and legitimately serviced by his documented accounting and auditing firm. This firm was a three-person firm with only one active accountant. Now, if you know anything about accounting, that's crazy, okay? Like, for the size, like, this multi-billion dollar company to be being audited by a three-person firm with one accountant, that's, like, laughable, to be honest with you. So... In the accounting world, there's the big four. They're like international firms where there's offices in like pretty much every city and they all work on like huge clients, like all the big name corporations that you know, those are typically, if it's not a big four firm handling it, that's kind of weird. And then there's like smaller regional firms and just different levels of firms. Like you can have really small firms, but they're probably working with like small businesses, not like a small ass firm working with a fucking multi-billion dollar a huge ass business on Wall Street. Like it just doesn't make sense. So they're looking at this and they're like, this is fishy. And no one's really putting it together except for Harry Marco Polos and a couple other executives are like, um, but they're just sitting back, letting it happen. Well, not Harry, he's telling people, but okay. In 2004, I love this name I'm about to say. It's Genevieve Walker Lightfoot. Like what a name. A lawyer, which lawyers always have the funniest last names, like, and hockey players. It's like you have to have, like, a really intriguing last name in order to succeed there. But anyway, so Genevieve Walker Lightfoot is a lawyer in the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations, the OCIE, in 2004. And she informed her supervisor branch chief, Mark Donahue, that her review of Madoff found numerous inconsistencies, and she recommended further questioning. However, she was told by Donahue and his boss, Eric Swanson, to stop work on the Madoff investigation, send them her work results, and instead investigate the mutual fund industry. Now, Eric Swanson was the assistant director of the SEC's OCIE. And I don't think I've said the SEC to in this episode, it's Securities and Exchange Commission. And so 
Swanson had met Shana Madoff in 2003 while investigating Bernie and his firm, and the investigation was concluded in 2005. In 2006, Swanson left the SEC and became engaged to Shana Madoff, and in 2007, they were married. So a spokesman for Swanson said, and I quote, this is from Wikipedia, he did not participate in any inquiry of Bernie or Bernard Madoff Securities or its affiliates while involved in a relationship with Shana Madoff. So in this 60 Minutes video that, or segment that I watched, there's a video shown of Madoff at some important meeting with people. And he says something like his niece's relationship with the former SEC director was not his only SEC connection that he had. He was buddy-buddy with other SEC people. And he makes some comment like it's really hard to like break the rules of the SEC. And so Harry Markopoulos in this same interview criticizes the SEC highly, as do a lot of other people. And he states that they're just a bunch of lawyers who can read paper and none of them have the financial literacy to see the fraud that's right in front of them. He also said even when it's shown to them directly, as was in this case, they choose not to acknowledge it. And so in this video, Bernie like basically says the same thing, but nuanced. He says it like that kind of like chummy, rich guy, like, <laughs> I won't tell if you won't tell kind of vibe. So yeah, he's smug. And like, I would be too, if I was fooling the SEC and making as much money as he was. So Madoff even has said after he was caught, but he said that he could have been caught in 2003 during those investigations, but that bumbling investigators had never asked the right questions. So this is from Wikipedia, and it's a quote. He said, I was astonished. They never even looked at my stock records. If investigators had checked with the depository trust company, a central securities depository, it would have been easy for them to see. If you're looking at a Ponzi scheme, it's the first thing you do. So he's just like, bro, come on, catch on. I mean, Ponzi schemes are really simple, I feel like. Like, I feel like that's the one thing the SEC should be good at catching is a Ponzi scheme, right? So let's talk about how he did it. So Madoff's Ponzi scheme started with what has been termed as affinity fraud. And this is when you target people within like a specific demographic or a group identifier, typically using it as a means of like gaining trust. So like maybe you have a similar background and you're like, you know, we came, we're cut from the same cloth. Like you can trust me. So in this specific situation, Bernie targeted other wealthy American Jewish communities and he had status in these communities already. So it wasn't too hard for him to get people to trust him with their investments. Some Jewish charitable organizations that have that fell victim to his fraud include Hadassah, the Women's Zionist Organization of America, Ellie Wiesel Foundation, and Steven Spielberg's Wonderkinder Foundation. Jewish federations and hospitals lost millions of dollars as well. A lot of these charities and organizations did have to close down. Like, for example, the Lappin Foundation um, was forced to close temporarily. And then this one is interesting. So Cheryl Weinstein, she was the former CFO for Hadassah. She disclosed in a memoir that she and Bernie had had an affair more than 20 years earlier. And I didn't see this come up anywhere else. I did see that she did, I think, testify in like a something where she like called him a beast or something. I don't know. I saw that on Wikipedia. Didn't see it anywhere else. But also there's just so much information to uncover about this trial this case so like I'm sure I don't know anyways so as of 1997 when Weinstein left Hadassah had invested a total of 40 million dollars with Bernie Madoff and by the end of 2008 Hadassah had withdrawn more than 130 million dollars from its Madoff accounts and contends its accounts were valued at 90 million dollars at the time of Madoff's arrest crazy so according to the jewishnews.com Madoff's investors also included European hedge funds, elderly retirees, and a range of nonprofits. And among his victims were some of the most prominent Jewish institutions, like we mentioned, as well as Jewish celebrities like Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel and Sandy Koufax, Koufax, the Hall of Fame pitcher. So according to Investopedia, people trusted him because his principal public portfolio appeared to stick to safe investments in blue chip stocks, which blue chip stocks are like stocks and companies that are just deemed trustworthy. It's like, it's a good investment. Simple as that. He also claimed to be using a caller strategy, also known as a split strike conversion, which I'm not going to be super great at explaining what that means. But 
a collar is a way of minimizing risk where the underlying shares are protected by the purchase of an out-of-the-money put option. So y'all, that is from, I believe, yeah, that was Investopedia. You can look that up if you want. I'm not going to spend time on that. In some interviews, this annoyed me. It was like he just couldn't decide what stance he wanted to take. So like he said in one interview that he doesn't understand how anyone could look at what they were doing and not see that a Ponzi scheme was happening. But then in another interview, he was like, I don't know, our returns weren't that outlandish. Like it's, you know, pretty honest. So he waffles back and forth a lot about whether it was his fault, whether it was someone else's fault, whether it was realistic, whether it was unrealistic. I feel like either way, looking at it, it's a, it's a classic Ponzi scheme. Like you just can't lie around it. Just don't even try at this point. People know. So according to an SEC indictment, office workers, and this is like the nitty gritty of what they actually would do. So office workers Annette Bongiorno and Joanne Krupe created false trading reports based on the returns that Madoff ordered for each customer. And this is from Wikipedia. For example, when Madoff determined a customer's return, one of the back office workers would enter a false trade report with a previous date and then enter a false closing trade in the amount required to produce the required profit. This is all the indictment, which we're going to get to in a moment. Prosecutors allege that Bongiorno used a computer program specially designed to backdate trades and manipulate account statements. And they quoted her as writing to a manager in the early 90s, quote, I need the ability to give any settlement date I want. In some cases, returns were allegedly determined before the account was even opened. So obviously, like that is so fake. Where else are you able to receive such security in your ROI. Like, of course, people wanted to invest here. There's a reason that, like, some of the most respectable names in the investing and trading world were not affiliated with him. Like, it, it's like, hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, looking at this, it's like, dude, obviously it was too good to be true. Like, there's always going to be some level of risk. It can't always go up. I think Harry Markopoulos said that there was about a 4% only 4% of the time that the firm was like open was there ever a downturn and that's like statistically like not possible like it's just not possible so i don't know it just seems like silly to i'm not trying to victim blame or anything it's just you know it looking at this i'm also not good at like investing and stuff like that it's like not my cup of tea so i probably would have fallen victim to this but I don't know, just like in comparison, like if I was to choose between like, I don't know, some Wall Street bank and then this and then like seeing, oh, well, that one's got this super great rate of return. I'll be like, why? Why is it so good? So on a daily basis, Di Pascali, which was like his like right hand man, like his like bestie, Di Pascali and his team watched the closing price of the S&P 100 and then they would pick the best performing stocks and use them to create like little bundles of stocks or baskets, I think is what they called it, for false trading records, which Madoff claimed were generated from his supposed split strike conversion strategy. So this is from Wikipedia again. Sorry, I can't explain that to you. They frequently made their trades, and there's air quotes around trades, or not even air quotes, there's quotes around it, out of stocks monthly high or low, resulting in the high returns that they touted to customers. On occasion, they slipped up and dated trades as taking place on weekends and federal holidays. So this was never caught. So those, like, the stock market's not open for trading on those days. So that should have been, like, such an easy red flag for them to find. And then this is another thing from Wikipedia. So Madoff told his investors to keep quiet about their relationship with him. And I feel like this really added to the exclusive image again of his trading. People were like, ooh, I want to be involved. But also it was because he knew that, like, if people were talking about how much they were trading with him, they would realize that, like, it was impossible. Like, he knew that there were limits for his split strike conversion. He knew that if the amount he, quote, managed became known, they would just realize that, like, this wasn't possible. And Harry had already pointed this out. So we're about to talk about his, like, the breaking point, like the point when he gets found out. And before we do that, I do want to just go ahead and plug some of the sources for the podcast. So I want to thank you all for being listeners and supporting the podcast. Make sure that if you are watching us here on YouTube, that you are subscribed to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash profsgetpodcast. 
You can follow us on Instagram at ProfsGetPodcast. You can get merch at ProfsGetPodcast.BigCartel.com. And you can check out our website at ProfsGetPodcast.com. And I think that's it. Thanks, guys. Okay, we'll get back into it now. All right, so it's 2008. Everybody knows 2008, the recession. So up to this point, he's been ridiculously doctoring financial statements. There's this weird, like, unwarranted level of trust from his investors. But still, he was able to make returns to investors through all these, like, historical events where people traditionally lost money. So, like, there was a severe recession in the early 90s. There was a global financial crisis in 1998. There was obviously, like, an economic issue, some turbulence. Oh, my God. That's, like, the worst word I could have used after 9-11. He promised his investors – this is from the New York Times again. I like the way they wrote this. He promised them consistency in an increasingly volatile market, and he always delivered, never failing to honor a redemption request and never falling short of the profits he had forecast. Unfortunately, the housing crash started in mid-2007 and the failure of the Lehman Brothers in September 2008 was when shit hit the fan for Bernie. So the FBI report and the federal prosecutor's complaint says that during the first week of December 2008, Madoff confided to one of his sons that he was struggling to meet $7 billion in redemptions. So this next little section I'm going to read to you is from Wikipedia. For years, Madoff had just deposited investors' money in his business account at J.P. Morgan Chase, and he would withdraw money from that account when people requested redemptions. Like, as simple as that Ponzi scheme. So he had scraped together just enough money to make a redemption payment on November 19th. However, he wasn't able to do this anymore. After Thanksgiving, it was apparent that there was not going to be enough money in the bank account to make any more requests. His Chase account had over $5.5 billion in it in mid-2008, but by late November, it was down to $234 million, which is like not even a fraction of the outstanding redemptions. Because remember, people are taking their money out of the stock market because the stock market is crashing. Like, people want their money. At this point, banks have stopped all lending due to this mortgage crash mortgage crisis, and Madoff knew that he couldn't even begin to take out a loan to potentially even cover these redemptions, which is, like, we all know that's, like, a big fuck-up. That was what Billy McFarlane was doing. That's what all these fraudsters do. They get a loan, they pay people back, then they have to pay back the loan, so then they go fraud some more people, and they just continue their awful cycle. On December 3rd, he told Frank DePascali, the guy I just mentioned a second ago, he had overseen the fraudulent advisory business, and he was like a longtime assistant co-worker of Bernie. He told him on the 3rd, he was like, we're done. And then on the 9th, he told his brother Peter about the fraud, which I'm like, they knew about the fraud. They knew about the fraud. That wasn't a secret. Like, he just at this point was like, dude, we can't keep it going. On December 10th, his sons, Mark and Andrew, and his wife, Ruth, and himself, Bernie, they sat in Bernie's apartment up in Manhattan, and he told them that he was, quote, finished, he had, quote, absolutely nothing left, and that his investment fund was, quote, just one big lie, and just, quote, basically a giant Ponzi scheme. So he intended to, like, tie up his operations over the next couple of days and then go forward with it because he was like, there's nothing I can do at this point. They're gonna, people are going to find out, so it's like I may as well just tell them. He told DePascali to use the rest of the money to cash out the accounts of, like, his family members and friends that he, like, really cared about. However, as soon as his sons, Mark and Andrew, left the apartment that day when he told them that, they immediately contacted their lawyer who got them in touch with federal prosecutors in the SEC, and they immediately turned him in, which I know was probably a really difficult decision because I think, as we'll see, it seems like everyone is, like, I don't know. Everyone seems to be low-key aware that this is a big Ponzi scheme. And so for them to, like, make that decision, like, I can't imagine having to make the decision to, like, turn your dad into the fucking authorities. Um, like, I feel like that's a big deal. So I'm sure that wasn't easy for them. And I'm not really trying to sympathize with them, although I'm sure they went through a lot. Like, we're going to talk some more about them. I actually, I do want to sympathize with them, actually. But I, I think that they did have some responsibility in this. Anyways, on December 11th, 2008, Madoff was arrested and charged with securities fraud. 
So Madoff posted $10 million in bail in December of 2008 and remained under 24-hour mo- monitoring and house arrest in his Upper East Side penthouse apartment until March 12, 2009, when Judge Denny Chin revoked his bail and remanded him to the Metropolitan Correctional Center. We stand Judge Denny Chin because he really, like, served some justice in this case. Chin ruled that Madoff was a flight risk because of his age, his wealth, the fact that he was going to have to spend the rest of his life in prison. And Madoff's lawyer filed an appeal. Prosecutors opposed it. On March 20th of 2009, an appellate court did deny Madoff's request to be released from jail and returned home to home confinement until his sentencing on June 29th. So he stayed in the jail. And in February of 2009, Madoff reached an agreement with the SEC. It was revealed that as a part of the agreement, Madoff accepted a lifetime ban from the securities industry, which is like, okay, anyways, he's going to jail for the rest of his life. Who gives a shit? I guess I gave a shit because I put it in my nose and I didn't have to. (laughs) After Madoff's arrest, the SEC was criticized highly, 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 highly. People were like, what the fuck? Where's your financial expertise? Where's your due diligence? Harry Marco Polos came to you guys multiple times over like a 10-year span, and y'all didn't do anything about it. So this is from Wikipedia. The SEC's Inspector General Cotts found that since 1992, there had been six investigations of Madoff by the SEC, which were botched either through incompetent staff work or by neglecting allegations of financial experts and whistleblowers. It says at least some of the SEC investigators doubted whether Madoff was even trading I'm like, dude, if there's even a doubt, like, y'all need to be doing a better investigation. That's crazy. So let's talk about sentencing. All right, so the criminal complaint that was filed stated that over the past 20 years, Madoff had defrauded his clients of almost $65 billion in the largest Ponzi scheme in history. On March 12th of 2009, he pleaded guilty to 11 federal felonies for securities fraud, wire fraud, mail fraud, money laundering, false statements, perjury, theft from employee benefit plans, and making false filings with the SEC. So like the whole gamut. Madoff insisted that he was solely responsible for the fraud. He pleaded guilty without um, to all charges. He didn't want a plea bargain. And a lot of people speculate the reason that he did this was so that he didn't have to cooperate and tell people the names of other people that were co-conspiratoring with him. And I have a little, I mean, that's like, I kind of respect that, like snitches get stitches, I guess. But I thought that was kind of like badass. I guess he's like, you know what, I'm old as shit anyways. Like I may as well just like take the fall and like let these people get away with it. Yeah, interesting. So Madoff admitted during his guilty plea that he would do a Ponzi scheme. He would deposit money into a bank account and then he wouldn't invest it. And then he would just generate steady returns to his clients, which was basically just money from other clients going to them. And when, he, when they wanted their money, he would just go to his Chase Manhattan bank account that belonged to them and take the money out and give them their funds. Chase and J.P. Morgan Chase may have earned as much as $483 million from his bank account because there was so much money in it and they're getting like all the fees and stuff like that. So I can see why maybe they were like, um, let's not say anything or maybe look into this. So... Madoff maintains that he began the fraud in the early 90s, which is like lines up with the first kind of investigation that they had in 92 over the two accountants that were sending him money from the clients to, quote, invest. And a lot of people disagree with this. Prosecutors believe that it started as early as the 80s. And Dee Pascali, for instance, told prosecutors that at some point, He knew in the late 80s and 90s that the investment advisory business they were doing was not legitimate. So an investigator of Madoff's business believes that the fraud was actually well underway as early as 1964, which that number I think we talked about earlier was like when Saul Alpern, his wife's father, started sending him clientele, sending him money. So reportedly Madoff told an acquaintance soon after his arrest that the fraud began, quote, almost immediately after his firm opens its doors, opened its doors. So we have lots of varying accounts, but I think it was all fraudulent probably all the whole the whole time. Bongiorno, who spent over 40 years with Madoff, and that was one of the women that I told you about earlier who was like just straight up falsifying like the trade reports. She 
worked there longer than um, anyone except for Ruth and Peter, so his wife and his brother. And she told investigators that she was, quote, doing the same thing she was doing in 2008 when she first joined the firm. So she had been doing that since she started and was still doing it in 2008. So Bernie admitted to the false trading activities. Um, He masked them by foreign transfers and false SEC filings. He stated that he always intended to go back to doing like a legitimate business activity. But after he had already like, you know, dipped his toes in the water, it was too difficult to get back out. And he just was like, he knew that one day it was going to crumble as they all do. Like pretty much all Ponzi schemes always like flip over on their heads. So he was like, I was just waiting for it to happen. I'm like, yeah, 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 dude, whatever. On June 26, 2009, Judge Chin ordered forfeiture of $170 million of Madoff's assets. And on June 29, 2009, Judge Chin sentenced him to the maximum sentence of 150 years in federal prison. His lawyers had actually asked him to just have a sentence of seven years, and then they upped it to 12 years because based on, like, the Social Security Administration, his life expectancy was limited or something like that. He was 71 at the time that this was going down. Obviously, this was denied. He got 150 years in prison. Judge Chin also didn't receive any, like, letters from friends or family testifying to his, um, like, character, what's the word? Like, a character witness. Nobody was there to be like, oh, he's actually a really good guy, and, like, this just must be a mistake. Like, no one was talking about his good deeds. And Judge Chin said the absence of the support was telling. I guess normally you get people that will submit that kind of stuff. He also said that Madoff had not been forthcoming about his crimes, which we saw and we've talked about so far. He said that the fraud was extraordinarily evil, unprecedented, and staggering, and that the sentence would deter others from committing similar frauds, which I was doing some research. It seems like there's another fraud that recently happened that people are comparing to Bernie. So we'll be talking about that at some point. So maybe it didn't deter people, but I think I've also seen that it might not go to court. So who knows? Also, Judge Chin agreed with prosecutors' contention that the fraud probably began at least at some point in the 80s. And he noted that Madoff's crimes were, quote, off the charts because federal sentencing guidelines only go up to $400 million in losses. And we're talking like $65 billion. Madoff apologized to his victims, saying, quote, I have left a legacy of shame, as some of my victims have pointed out, to my family and my grandchildren. This was something I will live in for the rest of my life. I'm sorry. I know that doesn't help you. In November of 2009, David Freeling, who was Madoff's accounting frontman and auditor, so this like small little auditing firm I was telling you guys about, he pleads guilty to securities fraud, investment advisor fraud, and making false filings to the SEC, as well as obstructing the Internal Revenue Service. So he admitted to merely rubber stamping Madoff's filings rather than auditing them. He was just like, yep, good to go. He did, however, extensively cooperate with federal prosecutors and testify at the trials of five former Madoff employees, all of whom were convicted and sentenced to between two and a half and ten years in prison. And he could have been sentenced to 100 years in prison, but because of his cooperation, he was sentenced in May of 2015 to one year of home detention and one year of supervised release. So this man must have had some solid fucking information. And I cannot believe that because he was the guy who was checking off their audits. Like he was like, yep, good to go. And they're like, yeah, two years of like the most easy fucking prison time at home. Yep, that's great. His involvement, and this is this stat is crazy too, this is from Wikipedia, his involvement made the Madoff scheme by far the largest accounting fraud in history, dwarfing the $11 billion accounting fraud masterminded by Bernard Ebers and the WorldCom scandal. We're going to talk about WorldCom too. So like, dude, crazy. I guess they would just like rather have more people, like more information on people than just him. I don't know. I feel like financial fraud like can reach so far like financial crimes and then they just get like the easiest like you can just tell them something that they want to hear and you just get out of it it's crazy so frank de Pascali pleaded guilty to 10 federal charges in 2009 like freeling he also testified for the government at trial of five former colleagues i think it was probably the same people all of whom were convicted he faced to up to 125 years, but he did die of lung cancer in May 2015 before he could be sentenced. 
Okay, so bankruptcy trustee Irving Picard, Pickard? Picard? I'm going to say Picard. He has been appointed as the person to retrieve the funds like by the government to like help the people who were victims of this fraud get their money back. So he's been like in charge of that. He indicated that Bernie Madoff has not provided meaningful cooperation or assistance, obviously, because snitches get stitches. In settlement with federal prosecutors, his wife Ruth agreed to forfeit her claim of $85 million in assets, leaving her with $2.5 million in cash. The order allowed the SEC and Picard to pursue Ruth Madoff's fund. Okay, and this is still from Wikipedia. Massachusetts regulators also accused her of withdrawing $15 million from company-related accounts shortly before he confessed. And so she came out and made a statement. She was, like, really quiet during the whole trial and the sentencing, and people were like, you're suspicious. Like, obviously you know something. And she was like, I don't know this man. Like, the man who committed these acts is not the man that I know. But then she's over here, like, taking money out of the accounts, like, right before he confessed. And I don't know what her typical money-moving cash flow situation looks like, but people thought this was suspicious. Picard sued Madoff's sons, Mark and Andrew, and his brother, Peter, and Peter's daughter, Shayna, for negligence and breach of fiduciary duty for $198 million. And fiduciary duty just means, like, if you're handling somebody's, like, financial situation, you're going to do the honest and right thing. Like, when you are a financial advisor, you have a fiduciary duty to appropriately handle people's money. And so that makes sense. All right. The defendants had received, and by the defendants, I mean Mark, Andrew, Peter, Shana, they had received over $80 million in compensation since 2001. And according to the civil lawsuit filed in October 2009, Picard alleges that Peter Madoff, this is crazy, he deposited $32,000, about $32,000 into his Madoff accounts, and he withdrew over $16 million Andrew deposited almost a million dollars into his accounts, and he withdrew $17 million. And Mark deposited $745,482 and withdrew $18.1 million. So that's why I said earlier, like, I feel like they knew what was going on because all of these people are, like, college-educated, smart people, and they know that this is crazy. Like, you don't invest such a small amount and get such a crazy amount back especially when it's being touted as this like safe and smart and logical investment like maybe if you invest in some crazy wild thing you might get some crazy returns but like if you're just investing in something that's supposedly like safe like blue chip stocks or whatever the fuck like you wouldn't be seeing these insane returns so I just feel like they knew what was going on in November of 2011 Former Madoff employee David Kugel pleaded guilty to charges that arose out of the scheme as well. He admitted having helped Bernie create phony paper trails, the false account statements, and, yeah, those statements that they were supplying to clients. So they're showing clients, like, this is how much you've got back, and they're just fake. Okay, we're going to wrap up here in just a second. We're going to talk about his time in jail, the aftermath, and then um, kind of where his family is. So, all right. Bernie was sent to the Federal Correctional Institution Butner Medium near Butner, North Carolina, which is about 45 miles northwest of Raleigh. And I don't think I knew that he was here in North Carolina. Madoff's projected release date was January 31st, 2137. And so this release date actually reflects a reduction for good behavior and is described as, quote, academic in Madoff's case because he would have to live to the age of 198 years old to be released, even on good behavior. And this little section about jail is all from Wikipedia. So when he began his sentence, supposedly he was so stressed um, that he, like, broke out in hives and a bunch of other, like, skin rashes and stuff as soon as he got there. And then in October of 2009, it was reported that he experienced his first prison yard fight with another senior citizen inmate. And then also in 2009, he was sent to Duke University Medical Center for... What some reports say were very severe injuries to his face, ribs, and lungs. However, he signed an affidavit saying he was only there for hypertension. I don't know. Seems like people just want to talk about him getting beat up. I want to talk about it. In a letter to his daughter-in-law, he also wrote that he was being treated like a mafia don in the prison. He wrote, quote, They call me either Uncle Bernie or Mr. Madoff. I can't walk anywhere without someone shouting their greetings and encouragement to keep my spirit up. It's really quite sweet how concerned everyone was about my well-being, including the staff. 
it's much safer here than walking the streets of New York. I feel like this is always the case with financial crimes or like people like Martha Stewart, like people that go to jail that have money, they typically don't get treated too bad. Although he did get in some fights. So, um, it was also reported that he befriended Carmen or Carmine Persico, who was the boss of the Colombo crime family since 1973, one of New York's five American mafia families. I'm going to do an episode on the mafia family. So hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad, but I think that's super interesting. And then in February of 2020, I remember seeing this. His lawyers did file for compassionate release because he was given like 18 months to live or something for chronic renal failure. And they also said that COVID would be a threat to his life. It was denied. I mean, like the dude's old as shit at this point. I'm not saying that like (laughs) just because you're old, you deserve to die. But like, I don't know. It's just it doesn't feel like a special enough case. They denied it because his crimes were so severe. Madoff died of natural causes at the age of 82 in Federal Medical Center Butner, a federal prison for inmates that had special health needs because of his renal failure. Um, He died in North Carolina on April 14th, 2021. And then TMZ actually got a death certificate, and it said the cause of death was hypertension, um, cardiovascular disease, and chronic kidney disease. He was cremated in Durham, North Carolina. Okay, the aftermath. So... People were obviously devastated and confused. People were rich one day and the next they had nothing else. Like I saw this really old couple that like supposedly was had like a nice fortune to sit on for the rest of their lives and then like passed down to their family and then suddenly it was gone. And they only had like 60 days of living expenses to cover like and they had to like move out of their house. And it's just sad like that those old people had to deal with that. And then also I saw on, I think it was the jewishnews.com, these lawyers were talking about like all these victims, like people thought that they had lost so much money, but in reality, they never lost more than the amounts that they had actually invested because they never actually had more than what they invested. Like all of it was fake. All their valuation documents were fake. And if they withdrew money, the money they received was just someone else's money. So like, say I invested $10,000, but Bernie Madoff shows me a piece of paper that says I have $200,000. People were, like, grieving the $200,000 that they supposedly lost, but they never had that because he wasn't investing it. It was just sitting in a bank account, and that was a fake piece of paper. So all you really had was $10,000, which still sucks to lose. But it's just, like, a really confusing thing that was going on. So not only were people upset about, like, money, but... I mean, I guess it is all about money at the end of the day, but people were literally committing suicide. Like, at least two people that we know of um, died by suicide after this that were related to the Madoff um, Ponzi scheme. Another major investor suffered a fatal heart attack after the stress. Some investors lost their homes, their livelihoods, like I mentioned. And a lot of people lost trust from their friends and family because... I mean, they were recommending Bernie Madoff. They're like, oh, my God, I'm like, I have this great investment company. You should go check them out. And then people go and put their money with him. Now they don't have any money. It's fucked up. So the IRS ruled in this scenario and other scenarios similar to this, like other fraudulent investments, um, any schemes that people would be in. So any capital losses in this kind of situation can be treated as a business loss. So this allows the victims to claim tax deductions for such losses. So that's good. Um, obviously they're trying to like get all the money back to them, but that helps like in the current, in the meantime, you know, David Sheehan, chief counsel to trustee Picard. So remember Picard is the guy who's trying to get all their money back. They stated in September of 2009 that there was about $36 billion invested into the scam. And by that, it just means $36 billion from people given straight to Bernie. He returned about $18 billion to investors because, remember, they're like, you're investing for a long time. So you're not just, like, constantly getting money back all the – like, you're not getting all of it back all the time. Or you're, like, asking for an, um, a withdrawal. What's the word that they've been using? I can't remember. And then there's, like, another $18 billion where, like, they don't they don't know where that is because it's, like, they spent it, you know. About half of Madoff's investors were what's called – called, quote, net winners, which means they earned back more than their investment. So take back what I just said a second ago. But so they were like, oh, my God, I'm getting so much money. Yeah, of course. The withdrawal amounts in the final six years of this scam were subject to what's called, quote, a clawback lawsuit, which just means like the return of money. So say I'm like someone I invested $10,000 and I get back $30,000 
I'm like, hell yeah, like that's a lot of money. And it happened in the last six years before Bernie was caught. They might come for me and be like, hey, like that's not your money. Um, you need to give it back to us so we can give it back to the victims. Even though you're still technically a victim, it's just, yeah, it's messy. So we've seen this like $64.8, $65 billion floating around um, that number, but that includes fictitious money made up by Madoff, um, money people thought that they had. Like only um, this woman, Erin Arvidlund, she publicly questioned Madoff um, in 2001. She was like, this investment performance is a little crazy. She states that the actual amount of fraud might never be known, but was likely between 12 and $20 billion based on different calculations. I think I saw in the New York Times they said $17.5 billion. Either way, that's still a lot of money. So according to the New York Times, as of April 2021, Irving Picard recovered $14.4 billion from lawsuits and settlements, roughly covering all the money investors gave to Mr. Madoff. The recovered sums, of course, do not make up for the billions that investors thought that they had made over the years investing with him. I mean, that's like world shattering, you know, like you've spent all this time like thinking that you've built up this like huge amount of money to like pass down to your family or whatever you want to do with it. And it's just not there. Like think of all the because time is of the essence when you're investing, which I need to get on it. Um, and you guys do too. invest your money. But like if you start investing at 20 and then like if you're investing with him in like 1980 and now it's like 2008 and you've been investing with this man for almost 30 years and now all your money's gone and you're like 50 something, like starting over at that point is not going to get you anywhere near as good as you could have been if you just put it somewhere else when you first started. So it's really sad. And then according to Investopedia, as of September 2021, the Bernie Madoff Victims Fund, which is led by Richard Breeden, he recovered and paid more than $3.7 billion to almost 40,000 victims. This was after their seventh and largest distribution, and they've recovered about 81.35% of the victims' money. That's awesome. Okay, this is our last little section. So on the morning, okay, and it's sad. I'm just going to trigger warning, although I probably should have trigger warning to the other times that I said suicide, but we are about to talk about suicide. On the morning of December 11th, 2010, exactly two years after Bernie's arrest, his son Mark was found dead in his New York City apartment, and it was ruled a suicide by hanging. So like I mentioned, um, they had the tough decision of turning in their father. They also had taken multi-million dollar loans out with their father. So I don't know what that looks like when like, you know, all this came crashing down. Like, I guess they would also owe money back to like in some of these scenarios, like the clawback cases. And I mean, if they had a part in it and they knew about it, I don't know, but I know that they were getting a lot of slack, a lot of, um, backlash and a lot of people were not happy like I think somebody said and I might it might have been the 60 Minutes interview where they were like Bernie Madoff shouldn't walk down the street of New York City because you don't know what's going to happen to him because so many people invested with him like so many people had a stake in this and people get upset about their money like that's just a fact so I'm sure this was a lot to take in as the sons of uh, I'm like visibly uncomfortable Sorry, if you're watching this, I, like, can't sit still. I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, this like, makes my skin crawl. This is literally why I went and got my accounting degree because I originally wanted to be a forensic accountant, and then I realized I didn't really like doing the actual, like, work that went into it. I just like the glamour of, like, catching white-collar criminals, which I guess isn't really that glamorous. But anyways, this stuff, like, just really gets to me. So it's really sad. Um they had these huge loans. There's a big financial burden they had to carry. There's a big burden with the press and, like, the world looking at them. They have, like, international investors. And then also they had to, you know, turn their father in. So there's lots of contributing factors to this. Um, also, I don't know anything about his mental health or his personal life. So very tragic. Another kind of – these next three bullet points, the last three, they're all sad. So during a 2011 interview on CBS, Ruth – claimed that she and Bernie had attempted suicide after his fraud was initially exposed, and they both took, quote, a bunch of pills in a suicide pact on Christmas Eve 2008. It's Christmas Eve as I record this, so that's 14 years ago. It obviously didn't work. According to the New York Times, on September 3rd, 2014, Andrew, their other son, died of cancer. He's the one who had lymphoma, 
and he died at the age of 48. He blamed the stress of the scandal for the return of the cancer that he had fought off in 2003, and I believe that because stress manifests in the body. Emotions manifest in the body. If you don't process them, they, like, recycle in the body, so it's really sad. And then this one's crazy. On February 17th of 2022, so this is a recent advancement, Madoff's sister, Sandra Weiner, and her husband, Marvin, were both found dead with gun wounds in their Boynton Beach, Florida home. The deaths of Sandra, 87, and Marvin, 90, were labeled by police as a potential murder-suicide. I don't know much more about that. That was from Wikipedia. I might look more into that, but I think this episode's getting to the end, so we'll just leave it at that. Man, Bernie Madoff, he makes me so mad. You know what? I'm just going to leave it there. (laughs) I don't even have like a cohesive thought that I can put together for this. I think that's it. Leave a five-star rating and like and share this video and subscribe and go watch the Bernie Madoff docuseries and let's talk about it because this is my shit. All right. Love you guys so much. Stay skeptics. I will see you next week. What's up, skeptics? Thank you so much for being dedicated listeners of Professional Skepticism Podcast. I couldn't do it without you. If you like what we're doing over here at Professional Skepticism, please show your support by doing any of the following. Leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Professional Skepticism Podcast. Subscribe to our Patreon for behind-the-scenes and bonus content at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Get some merch at profsketpodcast.bigcartel.com. Check out our official website at profsketpodcast.com. Follow our Instagram at profsketpodcast. You can find all these links in our Instagram bio or in the episode show notes. We've come so far and our journey has only just begun. Subscribe to make the dream work. Stay sus, skeptics. Mwah.